Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. This is episode 26, and I'm in the presence of a very special guest. Her name is Brittany Jones, and she has a distinct moment right now because she's running for president of the United States. She's running unaffiliated. Uh, She's based in the state of Oregon, and I don't want to give too much information to her because she's going to tell us um, a lot more about her life and what her campaign is about. But I do want to say thanks for accepting the invitation and welcome to the show, Brittany. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, I'm very excited. I was um, looking throughout. I'm not going to tell people my secrets because people may start stealing the guests and stuff down the road. No, we we need all the um, exposure we can get or whatever. We want to promote candidates like Brittany Jones and John Sasevich because um, our mainstream media suppresses a lot of divorces that go contrary to, to what they promote to us. And so I try to bring people on to have alternative views and actually relate to everyday people across the United States. And so hopefully my audience around the world and the United States can get a benefit from this information. I want to start out by asking you, Brittany, um, what got you into running for the president of the United States? What was the first um, big move that made you say to yourself, I had to do this. And and after that, you can kind of go into how you grew up in the world and your upbringing. Well, I want to say that it wasn't just one big moment. I mean, there was um, in 2016 with Trump. Um, I had been, I, I study history um, in and out of school. A lot of my college classes, even art history, um, has patterns of what goes on politically in other nations and other countries throughout their their founding to their collapse and america is following some very dangerous patterns that we've seen in other countries before there's a revolution or a collapse of the government or a mass exodus of the people leaving and an economical collapse or a reformation of the government and it's when the poor people become more poor the rich become more rich and there's a huge gap there then the people stop getting listened to they get angry and it spirals into, into the collapse of a nation. And then when I saw Trump got elected, I'm like, I have to. And that was in 2016. And I'm like, I'm not old enough. I have to wait. I've been waiting and watching these patterns get worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, and so as soon as I was old enough, I told my friends, I'm like, yeah, I'm really doing it. I'm running for president. And they, they told me I was crazy, but I get that a lot. So that was this year, this, this election, I'll finally be old enough to take office. Okay. So you haven't ran for public office previously. I have, I ran for mayor of Eugene. Um, but I am married to a Chinese immigrant. Her name is Jing. And when I was filling up the, getting the petition forms and getting everything ready to be on the ballot, our immigration attorney told us that she would not represent us anymore if I ran for mayor. And Jing was not, she didn't have a green card yet or anything. And we have one one appointment left for her to get her green card. She's currently in China right now. 
And so I backed, I dropped out of that race to, to keep my marriage going where it needed to go. And um, when I called Jing to tell her I'm running for president and I understand our attorney had problems with me running for mayor, she's definitely going to have problems with me running for president. Mm -hmm. But I was like, we could get a new lawyer if we have to. And she goes, I support you. And that was the, the confirmation I needed to go for it. Are you originally from Oregon? Yes, I was born in Cottage Grove where the hospital is no longer there anymore. So, and then we grew up primarily in Eugene. And how your uh, how would you say your upbringing was and um, what components of your upbringing have um, you seen grow over time and kind of influence your politics and, and maybe what you would bring to the United States of America if you became president? Well, I remember growing up, um, my mom was single raising us and she worked and went to school and we, should, we always had a roof over our head. But I do remember times, you know, where we'd be hungry and I, I love you, mom. If you ever listen to this podcast, this is not against you. This is against America. Um, they're the poverty level nations. And there's a pizza box sitting on the stove and I got really excited because I woke up and I was hungry. I was ready for breakfast and I opened it and fruit flies flew out of the box and there was no food in there. And I got really sad. That's like a really clear memory in my mind of, of my childhood. Um, but my mom was always loving and supportive growing up, she always encouraged us to be ourselves, you know, let us dress up, let us, let us be kids. And now as an adult, as a sing, not single parent, but it's kind of like a single parent because my wife's been in China for two years because COVID and she's stuck over there. Um, raising my kids by myself and seeing how, understanding how hard my mom had to have worked back then. And that was when the cost of living is, wasn't even as near to what it is today. And I make more than my mom made and I still struggle and I'm still living paycheck to paycheck. My small businesses are struggling. There's no support for the poverty level citizens and experiencing it as a child and experiencing it as an adult are two completely wildly different things. There are systems are inundated with homeless like St. Vincent de Paul in section eight, their wait lists are three to four years long because they just don't have the resources and the funding to do what needs to be done to help people. And so, you know, having the childhood that I had and then having the mom that I had and seeing how hard she worked, I guess my work ethic is the biggest thing that I took away from that is, is working hard for what you want, pursuing your dreams. And I hope to show my kids that, you know, even though we're struggling, you shouldn't put your dreams on hold. You should go after your goals. If you see something that you want changed, go after it, work for it. And I'm kind of bringing that with me in, in my campaign is encouraging people to be themselves, chase their dreams, make the change that we need in America happen, be the change pretty much. Because unless we stand up and do something, I don't want to be a fear monger or <laughs> cause chaos, but it's going down a really dark path right now. And so we need the creative people, the people who, who lived poverty level, lived through these situations and had to do sex work or join the military or work three or four jobs just to make ends meet. Those people have seen the system and how it fails from the inside, including myself. And when you've been in that situation, you can see ways like if they would just do this, it would work so much better. Simple solutions that are not being implemented because the people in our government right now are disconnected from what it's actually like to live on this level in America today.
you mentioned something really important. It's actually one of the things that stood out compared to um, other people running for president of the United States. You, you took a very um, open stance about legalizing sex work. Uh, actually, the first episode we've done on the forum, we, we had a portion dedicated to sex work in Spain. My friend Martin Hyderpatine Wilson came on and we talked about sex work in Spain um, quite a bit within the interview. And that's something that's not as talked about in the United States. And that's where I really tried to find people and those ideas because even um, people who claim to be progressive-minded people, um, they tend to shy away from topics like sex work. And so is that from a personal experience? Like why, why is that a very important issue for you and why would you legalize sex work um, in the United States? Um, it does come from personal experience. I, I've worked in, in the adult industry for quite a few years before I had um, my most recent business. And I actually started getting back into it before I was like, I'm going to run for president. So I obviously can't work in that industry while I'm having a campaign. I did webcam modeling, alternative, adult alternative modeling, which um, is nude, lingerie. Um, it can be creative. It, it can be artistic. I for a brief moment, I was signed on with a porn agency. I never did anything with them because that just wasn't my, the, where I was going. And then for another brief moment, I did dip my toes into escorting. Um, but there's lines that I couldn't cross and the legality aspect being who I am. And I'm like, if this was legal, I could stop struggling. I'm a consenting adult. I should be able to make these decisions for myself. Why is this being taken from me? I, this should not be illegal. It's legal in porn, but it's not legal in a private situation. It has been legalized in the United States before. And it went very, very well. And it's great that you brought that up because my committee just sent out some emails to two councilwomen in California who are, you know, dealing with a huge issue and an increase in sex workers on, on the streets. And they're pushing for it to be legalized and regulated and the, what people people here legalize and they're like oh god it's going to go crazy they're ignoring the regulated part just like in the porn industry you have to get um sti testing std testing before you know you have to do it regularly so that we prevent the spread of diseases and infections and having it regulated in the sex work industry and in the, in the private industry i guess you could say because that does happen in private would reduce those instances of the spread of infections and diseases. Also, sex workers could come forward and report abuse, report, you know, the abuse of pimps that are taking their pay, their, their, their pay would be protected. It would also create a tax revenue for the United States, which could go into education and housing and all these other things that are so desperately needed. And as one of the councilwomen said, and many people point this out, this, the sex industry prostitution is one of the oldest careers in the world. And it's not going anywhere. So why not make it safer? It's that simple. Why not make it safer? And if you really care about the people in that industry, you would want to make it safer. Because getting rid of it isn't going to happen. Sweeping under the rug isn't helping. So let's just make it safer. Now, would Congress pass that as president? Because I do have to get legislation to pass through Congress. That depends on who the American people vote into Congress during my term. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's a lot that... There's so many moving parts and 
I think it's I think what's so crucial in this discussion is the idea. Um, these thoughts, these are real thoughts. You said it yourself. It's one of the oldest businesses that, that has been around, and uh, the the porn industry is regulated. And so, why wouldn't the sex work industry be any different than anything else? It would be just like any other business. That a lot of it's just uh, the stigmatization. And I think this goes into one of your major concerns when you, um, based on your website and your videos, you talked a lot about separation of church and state. And that definitely plays into this. I know it does. Um, and I know you probably do too. But um, I do, I'll come back with the separation of church and state question. Look, I have quite a few questions about that. <laughs> um, me being, uh, this is a Kiko's Freethinkers Forum. I'm an open atheist. People know that if they don't didn't know it before, they know now that I'm an atheist. <laughs> I don't broadcast it a lot, but it's kind of understood, I guess, after a while. But um, I have my issues with organized religion for sure. But um, I want to go back to the sex work component again and just the whole idea behind stigma. I think that's something that's hard for everyday Americans to get behind. And why do you think that is? Is it simply the religious aspect of it? Um, why is it Why is it that people aren't more open to sex work, even people who claim to be for human rights, but they don't see sex work as a part of that um, paradigm? I think it goes, it does go beyond the church. It goes into the patriarchy. Um, women see it as demeaning and dis and putting your, you know, your own value diminishes the more you use your body but men are celebrated for how many how, their body count men are men are like oh yeah you got her last night great that's fantastic but then they won't date a woman who's slept with over a certain amount of people um so it does fall into the patriarchy being a good housewife being a good this and the toxic monogamy culture we see in america as well um because i'm polyamorous i've said it on my live streams on tiktok for the sake of the campaign, I am staying monogamous because adultery law is very state to state. And, you know, I don't want to be dis disqualified on a technicality for this campaign, but that's something that I would work on is the toxic monogamy culture in this, in our society. They don't want to think of their partner going and being with other people. The, the jealousy aspect and the control aspect of it takes a huge part in that. Yeah, I totally, I like that about the, you're right about monogamous culture we have. Um, it's something that's learned and it's something that's reinforced generation to generation. It's something that's definitely reinforced. And um, and it's hard from a cultural standpoint because we have so many different subcultures in this country and people do, um, they tend to go against um they don't go against traditions, they reinforce their traditions. They do that a lot of times. Even the, young, the younger generations, I see it a lot. And so I think that, that we're in a time now where I believe we're on the cusp of really some great things down the road. But issues like sex work, something like that is still viewed as like, oh, God, that's so revolutionary if you make that legal. But if not now, when? Because and and that was that's one of the biggest reasons why I disassociated myself with either. Well, I, it's really the same political system, in my opinion. Is the Red Blue Alliance is simply that is it's an alliance. They need each other because if they didn't have each other, they wouldn't exist, or they would have to change um, 
some kind of a way to where there wouldn't be so much incrementalism. And so that's the reason why when our kids are dead and we're gone and everyone else is gone, they can use the same playbook over and over because the same traditions are reinforced over and over throughout the times. But we really need some monumental changes to where we don't have to keep going back to the, the playbook again. We need to have civil rights that are etched in stone so we don't have to keep going back and forth. The Roe v. Wade example is one of the biggest ones I can think of. I, I hear it a lot from my friends. They say that, you know, the Republicans caused the Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And I'm saying to myself, if you dig into it enough, was it really just the Republicans? It, 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 took, it took a collaboration for that to happen. Um, that collaboration is intentional. And so I guess what I'm getting at is we need people to actually have stances that take stances and not this sort of less um, give up my consideration of the issue to benefit other people or to benefit their comfort zone. No, we need people to have actual stances. And so I love it that you, you um, are a big proponent of this, of sex work. You're a big proponent of um, military accountability because we don't have that action occurring in, in the White House right now, in Congress right now. And so that, that's the reason why I brought that up. And it goes into a question I have about why you decided to run as unaffiliated. I'm curious as to what made you go into that decision. Well, our country was never supposed to be a country of parties. Actually, um, I believe one of our founding fathers, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, specifically said that we should not have party affiliation within our government. And what we see today is they're towing the party lines on TV and in the public, but then behind closed doors, they're making backdoor deals. They're, they're two sides to the same coin. And people voted Biden into office and he's actually doing a lot of things that Trump said he would do. He's no better than Trump. He allowed the oil pipeline to go through Native American sovereign lands. He's expanded Title 42. He's trying to make it harder for asylum seekers to get asylum in our country. Everything that Trump wanted to do, he's doing. So he's no better. And the two-party system, all they're doing is, is fighting and bickering with each other right now. Uh, the fringe units of it are fighting and bickering, bickering with, it, with each other right now. And that is causing our Congress to stagnate. The next two years, nothing is going to get done because the Republican-controlled Congress or House is going to pass a bill and then the Senate is going to block that bill because it's Democrat-controlled. As much as the, the newer um, fresh faces in our Congress are saying, oh, yeah, I met this person. They're not like what I thought they were. That doesn't mean they're going to work with you. <laughs> <laughs> they have their their corporations in their pockets. They have all these things going on behind closed doors. They could seem like good people. That doesn't mean they're going to pass good policies. And we really need to get these parties out. And my gut was just telling me, don't, don't do it. Don't run Democrat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my tarot cards as well um, told me, you know, if you did run Democrat, you could get, you know, it'd be a great relationship, but there'd be a lot of betrayal. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to avoid that. I'll, yes, that's what I was getting at, because I it is I think I think people a lot of times would typecast like they do in Hollywood. And I think there's no different with political parties. Um, I know over the years, um, I've been typecasted and I try not to typecast other people because 
um, people will make assumptions about you based on your views. And there are a lot of people like us and my audience members that would be on the surface, you see our views and you think, oh gosh, they associate with one party or the other, but I don't believe in that anymore. I used to a long time ago, but I realized that it was, um, once the action stopped, that's when I knew I had to exit the Democratic Party. But but it is one of those things where you can identify with certain elements within the Democratic Party, but once you talk about solving problems and actually implementing things to, to help people, that's when the conversation ends and the action stops. And so it's as simple as that. And it's not us really saying it to, to influence people. It, it's the reality of it. And the money you, you brought up that I was going to bring up is um is a crucial part of this. Um, how do we get money out of politics? Um, I think it kind of goes into your separation of church and, and state stance. Um, I guess my question with that, with that, because we are talking about money and religion and everything else, what made that one of your most important focuses, I guess, the separation of church and state? I'm going to have to say, first, my own family, um, and then seeing how what I was experiencing is echoed throughout not only the, the LGBTQ community, but the pagan community as well. Um, when I came out as, as when I then bisexual, now I'm pansexual, I'm learning about sexuality, always learning. My family was like, oh yeah, we are, we always knew. They didn't care that I had a girlfriend coming out of the, the gay closet was easy. I, and I know it's not like that for other people. I know people are getting kicked out of their homes and it's because of religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. They're kicking children, 13, 14, 15 year olds out into the cold because they just happen to like the same gender that that's not very Christ-like. <laughs> and then when I came out of the broom closet is what, what we call it in our community. Oh, okay. um, my family lost their minds. Um, I was no longer allowed at my grandmother's house. My uncle, who I thought was an atheist, um, apparently is hardcore Christian or Catholic and he hosted Christmas at his house specifically so I would not be able to go with my kids. And if it had just affected me, I would have been like, okay, fine. But it affects my kids. My kids are missing out on time with their family. They're missing out of time with their cousins. Now my sister stepped up to the plate. She hosted Christmas at her house just for me and my kids and my brother. And um, my aunt, who's like a mother to me, she did not, she never once turned her back on me. We've had in-depth discussions about my beliefs and my practice and um but she's still here for me so it's a couple members in my family that are making it difficult and i know that if i ever hosted christmas at my house hosted anything at my house i know which side my main family would choose they would go to my grandmother's house they would go to my uncle's house they would not choose me because of my practice and it's because of the rhetoric of the church is so strongly filtered through our society that even people who don't believe in religion have this ugh, reaction to witchcraft, like in their gut, because the rhetoric is is almost a part of our mental DNA. I don't even know if that's a thing. I just, that's how it feels like. And we really need to get that rhetoric. And and the, the church, while they, they're not allowed by IRS tax laws to say any statement for or against any candidate or party of the government, which we know churches are doing, violating IRS tax law, but they are still allowed to lobby for laws and introduce legislation. 
And that's where we see the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That's where we see these transgender bills coming, anti-transgender bills coming from, anti-drag queen bills coming from, the anti-abortion laws. It's stemming from the church and the the morality that the church is saying that we should have. And while they can't make people believe in their God, they can, through laws, force us to physically follow their religious ideology by restricting our actions. And it's, it's becoming a problem because our country is not a theocracy. We're supposed to be a dem- democracy. And we fought, we fought Britain for religious freedom. And now here we are full circle where they're trying to force their religion on us again, which also historically religious oppression is another trigger for war and downfalls of civilizations. So we're seeing a lot of those patterns repeating themselves in America today. Before we continue with uh, some of the financial conflicts of interest with some of these religious organizations and lobbies in general, um, the lobbying issue is such a serious problem in this political system. And I don't even think people consider it when, when it comes to the action not being filled because of the influence of the money basically hijacking what you want to be done about the government, the changes. Well, when you have that there, I mean, there's a barrier already um, set in stone. Can you clarify to the audience, um, you, you referred to paganism before, you say you, say you are practicing pagan. Yes. And, and, and what, what is that for the audience? Can you educate my audience some when it comes to paganism? So paganism, diction, by, per the dictionary, is any religion or practice that does not fall under the four main re- world religions, like Catholicism, Christianity, Judaism, I think, is one of the four main. And then I can't remember the third, the fourth one. But um, so Buddhism would be considered paganism. Um, Hinduism would be considered paganism. Witchcraft, Druidism, shamanism, voodoo, priest and priestess, they would be considered pagans. Norse paganism. Anything that's not under those religions. Mm-hmm. Mine specifically, I still do believe in the Christian God, but I also believe that there's other gods. And so, and I don't believe in the Christian church today. So I don't consider myself Christian. And I practice witchcraft, which people think is a religion, but it's a craft. Wicca is the religious form of witchcraft, but you can be any religion and practice witchcraft. There's even Christian witches which I didn't even know about until I started, you know, really diving into paganism myself and the trauma from the church and the Bible and everything is so deep in the pagan community that Christian witches are still given flack. They're, they're, it's becoming more open. Like, yeah, okay. Christians can be witches. But before when I first came out, like, yeah, I'm, I'm still Christian. When I first came out as pagan, I was considered myself still Christian. And they're like, how can you do that? You're a hypocrite. Da, da, da. I'm like, no, no, you can still believe in this God and do this. Um, the Bible never condemned witchcraft. It was the mistranslations, but there's so many different pathways in paganism and witchcraft and Wicca and Druid and shaman that you really have to, I honestly recommend connecting with your ancestry if you, if you can, you know, finding where you come from and what practices they had before the Christian church came in and destroyed everything or claimed everything for themselves in their crusades because it's there's so many different paths i couldn't even get into it in the in this and these like multiple different podcasts about each different path yeah uh, i think your point is well taken though about the the christian reformulation 
that's what they called the reformulation. As you mentioned, there was a lot that happened during the, the Inquisition and the Crusades and uh, the Reconquista, all the, uh, just the history books, they've really dirtied everything up and they've um, written their own narratives of history. But um, yeah. I, I will have some people coming on down the road to, to explore that more, um, the pre-Christian world, I guess, if you want to call it that. But I was just curious about, because from what I understood, um, Wicca is basically a, a subculture of paganism. Paganism is a very broad terminology that encompasses a lot of different things. I mean, um, some are just nature-based um, and, and some just have hybrid sort of qualities. But no, paganism is definitely a very broad term and it's misused all the time, obviously for um, people's political agendas and everything else. The, so the separation of church and state thing, again, you mentioned the lobbying that happens. Um, and just to give an example of what Brittany was talking about, I wrote down some of the top religious lobbies in the country. Um, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, we've talked about APAC on a couple of episodes um, when, it, when it comes to issues um, dealing with um, the state of Israel and how that influences on politics and and not coincidentally, all the APAC money, pretty much most of it goes to the Democratic Party. Uh, the Family Research Council, another religious lobby, that money goes to the Republican Party candidates. It's all on OprahSecrets.org. It tells you exactly where all the money is going to these organizations. Homeschool Legal Defense Association, Bread for the World, Concerned Women for America. The lobbies are set up to where if one side of the ruling class isn't bought out, the other side is bought out. And that's what I want people to kind of take away from this is that there is a conflict of interest, not only with the religious uh, money that's coming in, but also just big business, uh, big pharma influence. I, I wrote down some of the top lobbies in um, the country. And I think three of the top five are pharmaceutical companies. And so it just shows you the conflict of interest there. Um, whether you're talking about religion, big tech, I think Meta was on there, which is a part of Facebook. And so all this, all these people influence the government. Um, what would be one of your initiatives to combating this? Is it something that we can't combat at all? What would you do to inform the public at the very least of these problems that we're having? Well, you, that is, uh, a, a, the Supreme Court ruled that corporations are individuals, which is where lobbying was protected. It gave corporations the voice of a person. And when I get into office, I say when as a form of manifestation and hey, it's gonna happen. When I get into office, one of the things I would look into or have the legal team look into is how to overturn that aspect of corporations being looked at as people. Because right now as it stands, lobbying is legal bribery. It's supposed to be donations. Donations mean you donate money and you don't have a say in what's done with it or where it goes or how it's used or what the people do after they get it. That's not what's happening with lobbying. They're not donating. They're buying. They're buying a service from our Congress members to pass certain laws and legislation or ease restrictions to make their, what they're doing easier. We saw that in the Trump administration with the railways. That's why that all these train wrecks are happening even worse than now. They wanted one person per two mile long train. Mm -hmm. 
that's not feasible. That's not logical. It's not something that can be maintained long-term and we need to, I know people want less government, but we should have an equal, some things need government like railways and roadways to maintain them, but we should also be able to still have our private sector, but that private sector should not be able to pay for laws to be passed. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree with that. So, um, yeah, you're right. We do have some issues already with the, the protections, the Supreme Court protections, um, unfortunately. But we do have issues when it comes to unaffiliated and independent and third parties when it comes to ballot access. Are you able to get on ballots as far as you know? Like, what's your strategy when it comes to that? This is there's a lot of misinformation about there about independent parties and it's rhetoric spread by the two parties in power vote blue or vote red or you're voting for the enemy and <laughs> we're like oh that's that's we think that the republicans are talking about the democrats the democrats are talking about the republicans no they're talking about third party we are their enemy because we would dismantle what they've built and they don't like that but our brains we automatically think of the two-party system because growing up you're not taught that there's more than two parties you're not taught that there's more options at the time of elections and then when you are taught about it you're pressured into voting for the lesser of two evils and your vote is essentially taken away when in reality, if we would just band together, we could easily change the face of our government. People are primarily concerned about the electoral college because they said you need representation. How can you do that if you're not part of a major party? Well, I get my own electoral representatives in Oregon. I get eight in California. I get 20. I have to nominate them. They have to fill out paperwork under my name to go and represent me in the electoral college. And I get that in every single state. So I have representation in the, in the Electoral College, and I didn't even know that until I started running for president. Mm. I was like, how am I going to have equal footing with the Electoral College? Doing research, I'm like, oh, my elections office in Oregon told me, yeah, before you can collect signatures to get on the ballot, you need electors. I'm like, for the Electoral College? She's like, yeah. I'm like, I get representation in the Electoral College. So it's not information that's readily available, which is another thing I'm going to be using my campaign for is teaching people how to run how to access this information that it is possible for you to run it's possible for me to run the constitution made it possible and so for each state some of them we have to pay a filing fee some of them we have to get a certain amount of signatures in oregon i need just over twenty thousand signatures after i get my electors chosen and i have to file those signatures and then i'm on the ballot um oklahoma i think it's a hundred thousand dollars to get on the ballot which is no way should it be that much for anybody to be on a ballot. That's not a, a fair election in any way, shape or form. Um, as an independent candidate, I have to go to each state and do this myself. Whereas when you're a Democrat or a Republican, part of a major party, your party automatically gets you on those ballots in some states. They still have to collect signatures in some states, but a lot of the states, they're just on the ballot already because they're the party nominee that's not free and fair either. Mm -hmm. And then funding through the FEC is also based off of party. If you're the Democratic Party nomination for 2024, you get access to a grant through the FEC and it's a $108 million grant. It has not been taken by anybody since 2008, but because I'm not a part of a major party or even a minor party, I don't have access to that. Mm. So it's rigged in some ways that are not spoken about. And then the way that people are saying it's rigged against me, 
it's not rigged against me. Like the electoral college is not rigged against me. I get my own electors. I don't have to worry about being a party nominee. I don't have, to, I, all I have to do is get petition signatures in each state and I can be on the ballot and then pay the filing fees and get electors. That's the easy part. The funding is the hard part because money is so tied into our elections and the FEC restricting candidates like myself from being able to access those public funds isn't equal, is, is not a free and fair election. So the, the FEC is the Federal Election Commission. And I think they ran, they're also ran by the two parties. They love to say that it's an independent nonpartisan organization. But if you look at the blue, if you look at the site and everything, I mean, it's ran by Democrats and Republicans. So even from the top level or, or the initial step to file to become a president, you have to go through the FEC, right? Yep. And so that body in itself is ran by the same people <laughs> who are rigging the system anyway. So, so you even from the beginning to knock on the door before you can get in the house, you're automatically having basically you're at the mercy of those people who are on a board basically determining who gets in and who gets out. Absolutely insane. I hadn't heard of the electors um, process described like that before, but that is quite eye-opening at the same time because... So, so it's not as hard as it may seem on the surface in some ways, but the money's the biggest issue you're saying as far as overcoming. Yes, because I mean, the money in campaigns is supposed to be used for advertising and spreading the platform where, or for paying your staff for, for running it. And um, if I don't have campaign financing come in, then I can't pay my staff, which means people can't work full time for my campaign because they have to live. and one thing that I'm grateful for because so much advertising, the commercials on the primetime TV and NFL and all this stuff, the people who are running for president don't, they're not in an age group. Well, I guess not all of them are in an age group to be able to use things like TikTok and Facebook and Instagram in an effective way. And they're free advertising platforms. So the fact that, you know, through COVID, TikTok took off so much, it's really became my main platform. I'm trying to spread over to Facebook and Instagram, but being able to access, we have over 3 million views on our platform on TikTok for free. I don't think AOC used um, Alexandra, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez used social media to run her campaign. And there was a couple others, younger generations that got elected that use social media to run their campaigns mm -hmm. because it's so much, it's so easy to ex access people through social media with hashtags and going viral and all this stuff. So my main concern with financing is being able to travel to reach people who don't use social media and to pay the people who are helping me because I can't do it without a team. It's not a one, it's not a one man or one woman show. Have you had, I know we talked off air a little bit before you got on and what have, have you had issues with TikTok as far as I, I agree that it's a great exposure um, tool has actually helped grow the podcast a lot. Um, TikTok, for whatever reason, my wife, she got me on the TikTok and I was against it for so long. <laughs> I finally succumbed to the pressure and I joined it and I was like, let me see if this will help with my pod. And my numbers have been growing consistently since because of TikTok. But you said that they've been censoring your content lately. 
Um, what exactly goes into that censoring? What have they been doing exactly? So how it has been working is trolls will come in or people who I, I think they're threatened by my platform and my stance. So they're trying to silence me and they'll mass report when I'm live on TikTok and TikTok will ban my live access with, and I'll appeal the appeal it. And sometimes they'll wait over 24 hours before they get to my appeal or sometimes they'll instantly deny the appeal. And one or once or twice they have accepted my appeal and given me my live access back. But by banning the live access, it also shadow bans my account. So videos that would get thousands of views are only getting a couple hundred and it's limiting my platform because of trolls just mass reporting falsely. And it's something that should be looked into. And this is actually something that, you know, Congress is trying to ban TikTok because of possible election interference. And that's why they took it off of government cell phones. And this is kind of an example of the American people, the trolls who are reporting my account, working with a foreign entity, TikTok, to suppress a campaign, which te technically is foreign interference in an election. And it's a federal crime for the American citizens who are doing it and for TikTok. So we do have um, a case started on this, an investigation started, and we'll see where that goes. I, I would hate for TikTok to be banned in the United States. It is my biggest platform. But at some times you have to stand up and say, this isn't right. Censoring, this is not correct. You can't stop my lives just because you don't agree with what I'm saying. I'm not being hateful or hurtful. I'm just speaking the facts of what's going on in the country today and standing up to trolls who are in my comments bullying. And we re-report the trolls and they say no violations found. <laughs> I'm like, there's literally accounts pretending to be me. And they're saying, nah, no violations found. I mean, how? They're, that's not me. How are you not finding that a violation? I, I That goes into something else that was interesting because when I found you, actually I found you through ballotpedia.org. Um, and even when I typed your name in on Google, it didn't come up right away. I had to type in Brittany Jones president and then it would come up. But if you just type in Brittany Jones, it, it won't show up like that. And so the algorithm also plays a lot into this um, suppression. Um, mm -hmm. In addition to just the outright censorship, I mean, the last election was heavily censored. There were certain news stories that didn't make the, the press. And, and in 2016, there was a lot of controversy. Um, and I'm not even going to get into the 2016 or 2020 mess. Um, just, But it just gives an idea of what's, there's a lot of collaboration and and all types of um, information campaigns going on behind the scenes. And, and now it's just very explicit now, the, the troll farms and stuff is pretty explicit now. You have some stances that are interesting about, you mentioned treaties for indigenous people of America. What, what about, I was thinking about the treaties. This is, this is similar to the, the contract of Black America. Ice Cube talks about that in his um, contract of Black America. He, he referred to the treaties for indigenous people, and then he referred to reparations for black people. For you, do you see those two issues as the same issue, like similar type of mindsets? I do. I actually talk about both of those um, with each other in my the first things I would do in office, because both communities have been repressed. And 
the only difference I see between the two communities is the fact that the indigenous community have sovereign nations on American soil and the the black community does not have that. Um, they were brought here. Actually, some of them were here before we came here, before colonizers came here, because there are Afro-Indigenous people that were here before colonizers came. And then when when the slave was being slave trade was being abolished or runaway slaves would go, they would run to Native American tribes who would take them in. And so there's a lot of intermingling of cultures. I want to have, once I get into office, I want to bring both the POC community. I say BIPOC and people are like POC. I'm like, no, because indigenous people need reparations too. Um, their infrastructure on their reservations are is extremely poor. A lot of people don't have running water or electricity. Their housing is dilapidated. They don't have funding for schools. And those should that should absolutely be provided because our government is the reason why they don't have that coming in here and the genocide that was committed and forcing these people into these these little pockets of land and then just taking still taking what they have while giving nothing in return mm -hmm. and so i think both communities with the institutionalized racism in america our prison systems our school systems even our medical institutions and then everything that's going on with indigenous the, the indigenous community i'm indigenous myself kind of go hand in hand with how people of color in general are treated in America. Mexicans, black people, indigenous, even Chinese people are treated terribly just on a systematic level in America. And that needs to be addressed and fixed. Politically reparations is very unpopular. Um, even after George Floyd was murdered in um, May of 2020, there was a poll that was conducted, I think, by ABC and someone else, a YouGov poll. And I think they polled it at 11 percent um, people were in favor of reparations. Um, no, not 11 percent. 11 percent of white Americans were in favor of reparations. And um, conversely, three fourths of black Americans were in favor of reparations for descendants of African slaves. How is that going to get any traction politically with such a low popularity? Because I hear it even with my friend circles a lot, people who um, claim to be, I guess, of a certain mindset, but they're not for reparations at all for Black people. Um, how do you sell that politically? Well, I have, I've been saying this about the, the pagan community, the LGBTQ community. White American numbers are going down. Mixed races, indigenous, BIPOC, pagan, LGBTQ, our numbers are going up. So to put it simply, we outnumber them. And if we don't outnumber them, we will outnumber them soon, which is why they're getting so loud and trying to trying to suppress this all of this. All of a sudden, it seems like it's coming out of nowhere with the Republican Party because they see our numbers growing and that makes them afraid because one, how I would address reparations in my, I, I have never experienced what our BIPOC community experiences. I'm white presenting. I have what people call white privilege. I can walk up to an officer with my hands in my pockets and not be yelled at and shouted at to get my hands out of my pockets with a gun in my face. It actually happened. They were going to raid the house I was in in the middle of the night and I walked out with my hands in my pockets walking towards them in their riot gear and they never yelled at me. They never shouted at me. They never told me to stop. They never told me to take my hands out of my pockets. And so I would hold space and that's the important thing is holding space for the people who do experience these things 
And that's in my video, one of the first things I would do is get these activists and these leaders and these people who are experiencing this into the into the Oval Office, into a place in the White House where they can sit down with lawyers and with specialists to draft legislation that would be fair. Um, good policies, good policies, good politics to pass through Congress. And that's how we would have to do it. And we'd have to get people in Congress who also support these ideals. So I he, like strongly encourage others who support reparations, who support equality, who support the freedoms of America that we're supposed to have, that we don't have to run for office, run for Congress, run for Senate. A whole bunch of seats are coming available in 2024. I, run, you have to be 25 to run for Congress, 30 to run for Senate. That's the, a lot of people are el eligible for that. And I would personally use my campaign to boost their campaigns. Mm -hmm. I have no problem working with others and helping others to get this done because that's where it's going to have to come from. I can't do it myself. We have to get the teamwork up there. We have to lift the voices that want this. We have to educate, even though the information is available and the people who are uneducated about it are majorly willfully ignorant because the information is being spoon fed to them and they're deciding not to listen to it. So we have to combat that by bringing more prevalent voices into the spotlight. Yes, um, I think I think for me, being a political outsider or almost I'm a dissident, like I would consider myself a political dissident at this point. Um, I just think that reparations is such a, a complex issue um, for, for the average person to understand. And it's hard for the average person, I think, to pinpoint what those reparations resemble. Um, my personal recommendation would be to, I guess, look at reparations just for the audience and everyone in a variety of ways. I mean, it, it's not just um, financial reparations. It, it's very much tied to the healthcare industry, uh, policing, education systems that, that have been disparate over the years. But um, that's why it's, I think it's a very complicated issue because um, a lot of people just don't know what that looks like. What does reparations look like? Like a platform, random reparations would have to be quite intricate, I think, and calculated in what its objectives um, are gonna be. Now, I wanna kind of segue into the $100 billion that is currently being sent to Ukraine right now, that uh, I know a lot of my audience is probably against, I am too. And I'm asking, what would Brittany Jones do if you were the president of the United States with a hundred billion dollars? What would be your priorities as far as spending that money instead of funding a, an endless war and a bunch of deaths? So I'm on the flip side of that. I support support supporting Ukraine. Um, they agreed to give up their nuclear weapons development in exchange for U.S. protection if they were ever invaded. And we send 1% of our budget to foreign aid. That's not counting military. And we're not sending our soldiers over there. We're not sending troops over there to die. Americans can go over there. I don't know if you remember that when they were offering passports to Americans who wanted to go fight anybody from around the world who wanted to go fight with them. But outside of that, if for $100 billion, we could... almost and i want to say we could end the homelessness epidemic we could provide free education for people or we could provide universal health care because each one of those things are expensive 
but we don't have to take away aid to allies to be able to do that. We have our own foreign military base empire. That's what our empire looks like. And we spend over $55 billion maintaining those bases that we don't need. Like the one in Northern Ireland, they don't even want us there. And we'll still, we're still there. Our equipment that's there not being used it's sitting there or the bases in Africa that are causing dissent so that we can take their resources for a cheaper price. Um, there's so many other bases like that, that we could shut down, reallocate our troops back home, reallocate the funding back home, strengthen our bases while still having money left over to work on our infrastructure, housing, education, and healthcare. And that's just one thing we could change mm -hmm. and still be able to help our allies, still be able to help people who gave up nuclear weapons and, and things like that. Because our military rates, we are struggling with retention right now because of the lack of care and the lack of accountability in our military. So we could reallocate the budget, close down bases we don't need, bring equipment back, bring troops back, save money and work on America without having to compromise our alliances. Do you think that, that the do you think that the dwindling numbers of the military are also a reaction? A lot of people are becoming anti-war just in general. I could see that, but from an insider's perspective, in in I guess Gen Zers are not signing up because they don't want to die. That's valid. Um, people are leaving the military that are already there. I'm in a couple military groups as a veteran, and people are leaving because they're not being treated correctly. They can't access health care. You know, they have a child and their command is not letting them take sick days to take care of a sick child, but they can't take their sick child to the CDC for child care. And so they're leaving. They're not re-upping their contracts. They're getting med boarded out. They're taking, um, we have this, uh, oh God, what is it called? Like a parental plan, family care plan in the military. And if you don't fill it out correctly, you can get separated from the army. So there's new parents in the military who are not getting the support that they want or need. So they're just not filling it out and letting themselves be separated under an admin separation. So there's a lot of problems with retention and with getting people to sign up. And I feel that if we actually got the military to be a shining example of what a military should be, how it treats its soldiers, it's, it's, Marie, it's, it's, it's Marines, it's sailors, it's airmen, get them the healthcare that they need, get them the housing that they need, get them the right equipment, get them the treatment and support they need. And we could see people joining the military again. So, so as president of the United States, would you um, retain the military budget? You wouldn't cut into the military budget? Um, well, that's the military budget cut falls into the foreign military bases as well. So I would, I would cut into it because we could consolidate our military and still be just as strong and not have to spend as much money. And okay. plus the Pentagon lost over $2 trillion. They've failed six audits now. So if they lost six, $2 trillion, why do they need it? And as far as um, policing is concerned, what's your view on um, people proposing defunding the police? What's your view on police in general? And what do you see the purpose of police going forward? I kind of have a radical view on that. Um, the police force comes from institutionalized racism. They're actually, were born from the Ku Klux Klan and then the militias that were left over after the Civil War in the South. And we can see if a cop is racist 
or sexist or bigoted against the LGBTQ by looking at their arrest records and seeing how many they are arresting in this in the population compared to others in other populations like blacks versus white people that they're arresting or gay people versus straight people that they're arresting um and we could see if there's an incongruity in who they're targeting and i say we should fire anybody with that on their record with that incongruity in their record and we should instead of defunding that's a poor choice of words it really means reallocating funding to get mental health services and better training, better, you know, demilitarize. And like in Oregon, we have cahoots. Um, when you call into 911, you can either, you have an option to connect with cahoots instead of an officer. And they're a mental health service. They can come out and help somebody in a mental health call instead of having an armed officer go out there. And this, it happened in Pennsylvania. Maddie, a, a Korean transgender woman called in for a mental health call and the incident lasted 57 seconds and she was shot twice in the chest and once in the head for a mental health call. But if something like cahoots was implemented nationwide, we could have mental health care trained professionals go out to these calls instead of armed cops mm -hmm. who are not trained in these calls, which could drastically increase, decre decrease police violence against people. And what's the name? You say this is called Cahoots? Yep, C-A-H-O-O-T-S. Okay, and it's specifically in place for mental health situations? Yep. And that's in the state of Oregon? Yes. And it's, okay. it's it would be a great example to use how we're building it here on a nationwide level. So, so I guess my question, my follow-up question would be, so you are for reallocating funds of the police um, because this is all tied into the drug war and everything else. That's the reason why I asked the question. Would you end qualified immunity, for instance, which is um, given the police union protections and stuff, would you be for ending qualified union, immunity or what's your stance on those types of things? I would be absolutely for ending qualified immunity. Um, it prevents them from being charged with crimes that they should be able to be sued for, charged for. Um, that would also have to pass through Congress, I believe. Mm -hmm. There's so many things. There's there's a checks and balance system in place. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So if we have a Congress like today, they would never pass, they would never get rid of qualified immunity. They would never pass it. And there's something the president can't just executive order things into being. It has to be what's what's what does the law cover? What does the constitution cover? Those are the things that could be executive ordered into place. Nothing else. A lot of these issues are very complicated and precisely for the reasons you're bringing up them. Um, you talked earlier about how Congress, it has to be so much of a percentage, 60%, I think 60 out of the 100 senators have to pass, sign off on something for it to even go through. And that's if once the House um, approves it, then it has to go through the Senate. It's all these different avenues you have to clear. And um, that's why this forum believes that a lot of things won't be solved by electoral politics at all. I think they're going to be solved outside of the political, the electoral system we have, um, unfortunately. But I think that the setup of the government we have here um, sets up a system where you really don't have any sort of a movement because we don't have um, 
multi-party representation. We have, I don't know what we have here. I'm tired of using the, the two-party system. It is, it's, it's just a pile of mess, I guess, is <laughs> the best way to put it. It's just a pile of mess, um, either way you look at it. That's I, funny that you said that. That's why when, when I came up and said um, the patterns in history, when you see a reformation of the government from what we're doing now, what uh, what's happening in America today, a lot of times the ones that survive that become better nations. And that's one of the reasons why I'm running is because there are going to have to be some things. And I always say in my lives that if I'm elected, there's going to be some growing pains for America, some shadow work that has to be done because a lot of institutions are going to get overhauled and we could have a reformation of our government by who is voted into power um, in Congress, in Senate, and in the presidential race. If we if we get everyone with the same type of ideals, then we can actually get laws passed to restructure our government in a way that actually works for the people. Mm. So it would be a reformation of our government, but through the legal means. I'm trying to avoid death and destruction on American soil. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. You have to sometimes navigate the, the world a little bit with the world sometimes. Um, I did have a couple more questions before we conclude. I did want to um, ask, are you open to having a presidential debate down the road on the forum with, with other candidates? Absolutely. And to get on the debate stage, I need to have 15% positive polling across five national polls. And then I could be on the debate stage with the Republicans, with the Democrats. But first, I have to get on those polls. And I don't even know how to do that. So I'm still researching that. Are people able to, for instance, if I'm in the state of Tennessee, could I place a vote for you? For which part? For, the could I vote Brittany Jones president in the state of Tennessee? Yes. And as long as I'm on your ballot, because there's even rules for write-ins, um, like writing in somebody's name to become president. But if I'm on the ballot, I'm a, I'm a registered candidate and I meet their, their write-in qualifications, anybody from every state, from any party could vote for me because I don't have to, I don't have to participate in the primary elections because I don't have to worry about being a party's nomination. Mm -hmm. I'm going all the way through to the general election, to the final voting, voting process. And at that point, I would be on everyone's ballots or everyone could write me in. So is there's no so you're saying that there's no sort of provision or anything right now impeding someone that's unaffiliated or independent from being considered as a write-in candidate across any of the states. Right. As long okay. as we as long as we cross the T's and dot the I's, we we should be eligible to be write-in candidates. Now each state does have their own qualifications for that, but they're not as stringent as getting two hundred thousand signatures. Mm, yeah. Oh, right. Interesting. Okay, yeah, this is a, this is a learning process. It really is. It's, it sounds quite complicated. Um, <laughs> this whole situation does just navigating through this world of politics. Um, going back earlier to you said your your upbringing and stuff, being from Oregon, and I, I noticed that um, you have two organizations. One's Olympus Academia, and the other is the Academy of Arcane Arts. What are those two organizations about? So that's actually one organization. It's one, okay. Yes, it's Olympus Academia, the Academy of the Arcane Arts, and it's actually a metaphysical online college, um, which I might have to shelve 
for this process of running because running takes running is a full-time job and running a business is a full-time job. Actually, they're, they're both more than full-time jobs. I wake up, I do it until I fall asleep. And then I wake up and I start all over again. And I have to be able to give that same energy to both. And I can't physically do that. It's not logical, but I know that if I don't run, then it's possible that in a few years, my school could be illegal. So I have to make, I have to choose, put running as a priority. Um, but it is a metaphysical college for the pagan religions and practices, even if they're not a religion. Um, we take science and magic and the arcane and we put them, mesh them together in one course of study. So your writing course that you'd have at a typical college at mine would be, you'd write about the history of paganism or the history of Druids or the history of shamans, or, you know, what is this or what is that? The theories of this all pagan based science. How can we, you know, how does energy manipulation work? How does this work? How does this work scientifically? study it, learn about it, let's expand it, because science largely ignores the arcane arts as not real. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of taking the seriousness of the scientific aspect and the seriousness of their practices and bringing them together in one academy. And so, and you saying that this is, um, or do you already offer courses or is that something that? I do, there's courses online currently right now. There's like five of them being worked on to be added to the curriculum. Um, we're very close to being able to submit for an associate's degree, which would be fantastic. Um, and so we are growing. We do have positions open for teachers. We have board member positions open. And it's it's currently actively running. And we started it in 2021. And does the University of Oregon or any of the surrounding communities, do they offer anything like this that you're offering? No, they don't. They do not. Um, there, there are other metaphysical schools, but they are they have like theology, um, theology degrees. They have religious exemptions, and I'm working on having no exemptions to be an actual verified university. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it takes a lot of process and a lot of work. Um, the University of South Carolina just introduced a master's program for magic and occult sciences. So there's already a stepping stone that I can use for precedence for here in Oregon, but in Oregon, there's nothing like what I'm doing. Interesting. I like that. So yeah, um, is I'm, I'm assuming all this is linked onto your website, this information is. Um, I do talk about the school on the website, but on my, I don't, I'm, I've been accused in my campaign of just doing it to get rich, but. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. I cannot, if I, if my committee says, yeah, you can have a salary, I can't make more money than I made last year for the FEC guidelines. I'm a poverty level citizen. That means I'm not going to get rich from a campaign salary. And I don't want to further those rumors by pushing this, like promoting my school, because that's not why I'm running. And if people directly ask about it. I'm like, yeah, you can go here but I don't have the school itself linked on my website. I do have its name on there to explain kind of my background and where I'm coming from, but I don't directly flow traffic to the school website for sales or anything like that. I got you. And I think you mentioned earlier that you were um, a proponent of universal healthcare. And uh, am I true in saying that or did I misunderstand? No, I do support universal health care, and I think universal health care should cover mental health, dental, vision, including braces and medicine that might be needed.
for whatever you're going through at that time. Because right now, a lot of things are excluded from, like I have OHP, the Oregon Health Plan, and I don't get vision. Um, all I get are teeth cleanings till my daughter's five, and then I have to start paying for it myself. And so there's limitations on what the government actually provides. And dental health and mental health are extremely important to a person's overall well-being and vision as well. Mm -hmm. I cannot afford glasses, but I can't get them on insurance because I can't afford insurance and the free insurance doesn't cover it. So I'm universal healthcare would be blanket for mental, dental, vision, all of it and medication. Awesome. That's good. Um, we definitely need um, a completely different system. I mean, healthcare should be a right for the citizens. I mean, education too, I think should be um, a right for everyone. Um, I, I don't know, did you cover that too, the education aspect? Um, how do you view the education system? Do you view that as something that should also be providing public education? I do, and I, I have touched on this on my lives. I don't know if I've made a video about it on TikTok or anywhere else, but this is where I say that we could have a balance of socialism and capitalism because we could have free education through college. Or if you want a specialty education, like I would still be able to have my college as a private college where people could pay to go to. So that's capitalism working side by side with, with socialism. Um, people would get free education, but if they want to learn more about a specific specialty, they could go pay for a private college. Mm -hmm. So but if it's yeah, a hybrid, but people could have the option. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We talk a lot in the form of our terminologies, and you know how it is when you're trying to sell these ideas to people they automatically go to the worst association that they have. But um, sometimes it's as simple as just saying, hey, this is it. And, you know, whatever you want to call it, socialism, <laughs> capitalism. Is it the, the, that is definitely something that I've seen as being a big distraction when it comes to um, what the people actually want. I think once it's implemented into the system, people get used to it. They're like, okay, this isn't so bad. You know, I pay all this money on everything else. And, Okay, I have a free public education. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, there's illegal American immigrants in other countries going there for healthcare and for education because it's free. And mm -hmm. so they're leaving our country, which our country is supposed to be number one, right? But <laughs> yeah. Americans are leaving our country to go access things that are offered in other countries at a better price and better um, quality. Like, um, surgeons the top there's top surgeons in mexico that came to america for schooling and then they moved down to mexico and set up a practice so that they could actually help people on a more affordable rate and they're still living great lifestyles because the cost of living down there is is phenomenal <laughs> when, yeah. when you have money coming in like that when you have americans coming down to spend their money on your practice so we are not number one in a lot of things and the things we are number one in are very bad, <laughs> like <laughs> maternal death rates, gun violence, death by cop. We're number one. Those are not things we should be number one in. We need to become, we need to actually become number one. And definitely, yeah, move into a more positive direction, work on bettering ourselves, look at, look at ourselves in the mirror and kind of see what the world is telling us, you know, kind of take, pick those signals up and see what's going on. Um, I have one more departing question before um, I introduce the audience and yourself to maybe how they can get in touch with you in case a viewer or a listener had a question for you. 
how would you combat the homelessness um, epidemic that we're in right now in this country? And that's not even accounting for people who we don't see this out in the streets, people who live in the cars, people who um, live in hotels and motels and everything else, just literally just in their cars sometimes. And that's their only means of getting from place to place. How would you combat homelessness as president? So in the military, there's a thing called KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Meaning keep it so simple, even keep it so simple, even a stupid person could do it. <laughs> it's kind of offensive, but it also makes sense. Um, so I actually started a nonprofit in 2019 or 2018 called United Threads. And it was a thrift store that resold everything that was donated for one to five dollars. And then any profits would go to buying a dilapidated or condemned home, getting a homeless person in there with some sweat equity put in there, um, and then having their mortgage based off their actual income, not old inflation rate numbers, but current numbers of today's society with their expenses, their income. And even if they pay $25 a month, it's not a free handout. They're still working for it, which does instill a sense of pride that, hey, you know what? I am paying for this house. I am working on this house. And that would give, you know, people who are addicted, they're, they've tried to be sober. I was homeless on the street. I've countered, encountered so many that like, yeah, I, I was clean for like two weeks and then I lost my house and I have nowhere to go. So I just did the one thing, like I wanted to numb the pain and that's what I did. Mm -hmm. So when they're given a place to be stable and have access to mental health care and drug and alcohol um, abuse counseling, they do take the steps because now they have something to be proud of. They have something to work for. They're not being treated like trash. And so I would take that model that I had for that. It didn't do well because the very first thrift store retail location I ever had, I had a slumlord, multiple leaks from the ceiling, lost a lot of money on that space. And so I shelved that for the time being. But if I took that same type of model that I had and made it a government program then we could buy up the dilapidated condemned homes that are empty bringing down property values of the houses around it making safety concerns because if they collapse if, if drug users are using them as drug dens they're not safe for children to go exploring in so we buy those up we renovate them so the first few would have to be from from donations or taxpayer do dollars or or sponsors but once the system got going and once we got people into those homes and paying their mortgages, that would be a self-sustaining system because the money made from the mortgages would buy the next house, would pay the contractors, would pay for the re rehabilitation of the house, would pay for the mental health services. It would create jobs. The program itself would create jobs in construction and the mental health field and abuse counseling field and the financial field as well because they would have access to financial advisors to actually help them with their budget. So this program would be a self-sustaining system that would not be on the shoulders of the taxpayer dollars once it got going. And we could end homelessness and improve our neighborhoods and make them safer in a very simple fashion. That's, I think that's a, an appropriate way to conclude the episode. Um, Ms. Brittany Jones, I appreciate you joining the forum and I wanted to um, link your information into the episode descriptions. I want you to tell the audience what's the quickest way to get in touch with you in case a viewer or a listener had a question. Um, if you go to jonesforpresident2024.com and you scroll to the bottom, you can click 
you can email the scheduler, you can email me, you can email my general manager, the campaign manager. All you have to do is click the little links and you can send an email. And that's the quickest way to get a hold of me because, excuse me, TikTok messages, they, they're overwhelmingly full. And email is what I check. I check it every day, every morning, afternoon, and night. Like I said, it's a full-time job. So that's the quickest way to get a hold of me. And um, volunteers can also email me through there if they're interested in being a part of the campaign. And I'm collaborating with another um, top platform or platforms down the road. And you say you will be open to being in a field of presidential candidates on a debate. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm going to be working really hard for that because I'm, I, I would, I would look forward to that. Yeah, we're, I'm actually in collaboration with um, two or three different channels right now. We're trying to set something up for independent third party unaffiliated candidates to, um, to where people get more visibility um, because, because that's the biggest issue is getting visibility and, um, or at least attracting something to where the mainstream media would have to kind of pay attention to it. And that's, that's a big hurdle. I don't think people realize the, the seriousness of suppression of the information. And, and that goes into what, um, you know, there are lots of candidates running it, but people never hear about them because you're only going to see what they show you. So, or on the, even on the radio syndicated programs, it's like that. Yeah. But, um, but I appreciate you joining us. And I think we're going to hear from you down the road as well. Um, I'm looking forward to um, following your campaign more. And it's been a great conversation and beautiful people. We have a lot of people in store among um, Kegos Free Thinkers Forum. We have a Shocky Nichols coming on Saturday. We have John Stasevich next week. We have Brian Tui. And we have lots of people in store for the forum. Again, so many guests, I really can't keep up with that. I think we have 15 people lined up before the month of April. So quite a few people coming on. And um, hopefully these ideas can spread a little bit further. And have a great afternoon, beautiful people. We will talk to you soon. Cheers.